also on this retreat, we've given you um, what we call the progressive instructions, this range of instructions that start with uh, connecting with the breath and the body, maybe sounds, but gradually expanding until every aspect of our experience can be included in this field of mindfulness and ending with the practice we've called choiceless attention where you just open up the sense doors, the experience, and not have a strong preference for what's being attended to and just notice whatever arises. And the intention behind all of these practices is to develop clear seeing into the nature of things, Dhamma wisdom. This is the intent of this form of practice I want to talk tonight about uh, an interaction or a teaching that the Buddha gave to two people that that hones in on uh, a way of practicing mindfulness that for them was 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 enough to bring them to awakening. And these two people are Bahia and Malyunkaputta. Some of you may have heard of Bahia. The teaching to him is is quite well known. He's known as Bahia of the Bark Cloth. Um, and in the suttas, there's just a little bit of a, a background to him. But in the commentaries, which are these later uh, reflections on the teachings of the Buddha, they really expand this story of Bahia of the Bark Cloth. And the story is that Bahia was just a fisherman. Not just a fisherman, he was a fisherman. And he was out uh, with some colleagues on a boat, and they got, on, get, got into a big storm, got pushed and pulled by the wind and the waves. The boat ended up capsizing, and all of his colleagues drowned, but he managed to make his way back to shore. But in doing so, you know, he nearly drowned, he was exhausted, and all of his clothing had been stripped away by the strength of the waves. So it said that he pulled some bark off a tree to just clothe himself in. So that's why he was Bahir of the bark cloth. And he went into a nearby village to get some sustenance. And as he approached this village, people took him for a sadhu or a renunciate, someone who was on a spiritual path, and they fed him. They very respected that he was doing that. So Bahia thought, well, this is pretty good. I don't have to go out fishing. I don't have to risk my life. I just, I become a sadhu and I'm taken care of. So he took on that role or persona of being a sadhu, a spiritual seeker. But to give him credit, he actually really grew into that role. He took it quite seriously and um, was practicing quite intensively for many, many years after this initial incident until he basically thought that he had become awakened, enlightened. He was quite comfortable in that assessment of himself. Fortunately for Bahir, it said that a deva, one of these celestial beings, came down and said, you know, Bahir, not only are you not enlightened, you're not even on the way to enlightenment or practicing in a way that you can get enlightened. And to Bahia's credit, instead of going, well, who do you think you are and what do you know? He said, 
well, if I'm not, who is? If I'm not awakened, who is? And if I'm not practicing in a way, who is teaching that? And this deva said, the Buddha is. The Buddha is an enlightened being living in the, you know, the such and such an area, and he is awakened and teaching how to become awakened to people. Bahia was so sincere at this point that he just got up and started walking to find the Buddha. So he was a fisherman, which means he was by the ocean. I think he was in the area of Mumbai, and where the Buddha was, which, you know, inland in central India, central northern India, around Bodhgaya, Varanasi, etc., hundreds and hundreds of miles. He just set out and walked. So intent was he on his quest for awakening. So that's the backstory to Bahia. Um, and then he, did, he kept asking people, where is the Buddha, where is the Buddha? And they'd say, go here, he's there, he's there, until finally he got closer and closer until he found the Buddha. But as he came up to the Buddha, he said, please, Venerable One, I've come all this way. Give me a teaching in brief, and I will practice it to, as best I can. And the Buddha was actually on his arms round, which is where they go out in the morning and collect food, Um, They do that in silence, just receive the food very respectfully and come back and eat. And then they practice and he would have meetings with people after that. So the Buddha said, no, no, Bahia, this is not the right time to give a teaching. And Bahia was so um, on fire to receive these teachings. He said, venerable one, we never know how long either of us will live. You might die or I might die if I wait to get these teachings. Please give me a teaching. And again, the Buddha said, no, no, Bahia, it's not the right time. Come back later. And again, Bahia beseeched him. And if you ever meet a Buddha, know that this is the trick. You have to ask (laughs) three times uh, if you want to actually receive a teaching. So he asked this third time. So the Buddha said, okay, but I have to give you a teaching in brief because I'm on my arms round and I need to keep going on with that. So this is the teaching that the Buddha gave to Bahia, a teaching in brief. This is how you should train. In the seen, let there be just the seen. In the heard, let there be just the heard. In the sensed, let there be just the sensed. In the cognize, that's the mental faculty, faculty, let there be just the cognized. Then there will be no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. Then you will be neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And it's said that on hearing that teaching... Bahia became fully awakened. Such was his previous practice and karma that brought him to this point, but that teaching was enough to completely free his mind. So he thanked the Buddha. The Buddha went on his arms round. Bahia went another way and somehow got entangled with a, a cow protecting her calf and was gored and killed briefly after receiving that teaching. So he was right. You never know how long you'll live. For Bahia, he was on, 
on target with that. But he was considered to be one who was um, quick to understand. He was always famous for that. So going back to this teaching, the first part of it is just one sentence. Going through the six sense doors, in the scene, let there be just the scene. So instead of all these instructions we've given you, we could have just told you that, and hopefully that would have been maybe enough. It is the essence of mindfulness. In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd. So the clear recognition of sense experience at the six sense doors, including the mind, but not adding to it or ignoring anything. Full recognition, this non-judgmental, present moment knowing. That's the essence of this practice. And it's often called bare awareness or bare attention. And if you think into, because you've probably had moments here, if not longer, of that way of being with experience, just direct knowing, nothing added or taking away, Just feel into what was it like when practice was like that. Just knowing. Things are rising and passing. Often, there's a sense of ease, right? We're not having, we're not entangled, we're not caught. A sense of ease or openness, stillness, spaciousness. These are qualities that can be present in that way of being. There's a freshness, an aliveness to experience as we're connecting in this ongoing way. That is what leads to insight, this kind of clear seeing. This is, again, vipassana means to see clearly. This is what supports that. And it's a great reminder that what we do with sense impressions is really important these sense impressions that are happening over and over again at all of the six sense doors. And we've said this before. We start to see it's not what's happening that's important. It's how we're relating to it, or you could say what we do with that. Because sense impressions are going to keep happening. In my collection of meditation-related cartoons, this is one I saw not so long ago, by a cartoonist called Bizarro. I don't know if you know him. He's uh, been around for a while. He's actually, I looked him up because this one so interested me. And he is a meditator and a philosopher. He's got long, in his website, long um, posts about his view of an understanding of the world and philosophy. But this one in a doctor's office, and the doctor is behind this patient who's sitting you know, on a, a table, and they're obviously doing a procedure on this person's back. And the caption is, as I remove this mole, which is a, a growth on the body, remember, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional, which is a great line, but even a better line that caption of the cartoon is the dermatologist. (laughs) It's on the certificate. I think we're all training to be dermatologists, right? To see in that way that we bring a dharma way of seeing to all of our experience. 
And it's interesting, the Buddha is actually often described as the doctor of our illness, and our illness is dukkha and the cause of dukkha. He's described as a healer. Um, so he's also a dermatologist, as are we. Um, and the practice of being a dermatologist is to live more and more in alignment with the Dhamma so that our view of the world and ourselves is infused by that kind of Dharma wisdom, a dermatologist. So these arisings at the six sense doors, without wisdom, how do we usually relate? I've said this before. Pleasant sense objects, there we go, grasping and holding on to. Unpleasant ones, push away, resist, aversion. Neutral ones, we overlook, we get bored, we get disinterested, or we actively go around stirring up trouble just to have something happen because it's more interesting than neutral, right? This is, we are deeply conditioned to respond in that way and we're reconditioning that so we don't do that so much because through that we create the whole world of likes and dislikes and at the center of it is the story of me right? What I like, what I don't like, what I think, what I feel, and it keeps just solidifying that way of perceiving. The same teaching, the same brief teaching was given to this other person, Malinkaputta, but it was a very different scenario. I actually came across this um, teaching and commentary on it from um, a paper by Venerable Analeo, A few of us have mentioned him. He's our bhikkhu and scholar in residence down here at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, currently in a year-long retreat. So great um, translator and commenter on the suttas, especially comparative um, Buddhism, looking at the texts as they've come down in different languages and traditions. So he, he brought, up, brought forth this uh, Bahia and Malyunkaputta suttas to give, give some flesh to this practice of bare attention. And he said, um, Malyunkaputta didn't have that good a reputation in the Buddha's uh, community. In one disc, this is from Venerable Analio, in one discourse he is rebuked by the Buddha for misunderstanding the nature of the five lower fetters, and they're five of the ten fetters that get uh, gradually released or abandoned um, in our progress through to full awakening. And in another, he goes as far as to threaten that he will leave the monastic order unless the Buddha gives a categorical reply to a series of metaphysical questions. And these are questions like, is the world eternal? or not eternal, or finite, or infinite? Are the soul and the body the same thing, or are they different things? After death, does a realized one, a Buddha, exist, or not exist, or both exist, or doesn't exist, or neither exist, or doesn't exist? And the Buddha basically says, I never told you I would answer those questions. I'm not going to answer those questions. And basically, those questions aren't important. They're not relevant to what I'm trying to teach and what it's important for you to understand. And in the same sutta as what the Buddha says about Malyunkaputta, um, it's famous for this, the simile of the poisoned arrow, 
where um, when the Buddha says, I won't give you the reply to these questions because they're not helpful. Um, he says, Malyunkaputta's attitude is similar to that of a person who was struck by a poison arrow, who instead of allowing the arrow to be taken out, first wants, to answer, what, first wants answers to a series of irrelevant details like what kind of arrow is it and what are the feathers on the arrow and who made the arrow. And by the time they might get the answer to all those questions, they'd be dead, you know. So it's like don't waste your time on these questions that aren't to the point of freedom that he is teaching. So that's the backstory to say Malyukaputra had been around for a while, he had a lot of conversations with the Buddha, and he wasn't quite getting it. <laughs> but finally, he decides to become serious, and so he comes to the Buddha and asks for a teaching in brief. And he says, when I've heard it, I'll live alone, withdrawn, diligent, keen, and resolute. And the Buddha says, There are those who are young, intelligent, and with sharp faculties, having recently gone forth in my teaching and discipline, and they are nevertheless without indolence in my teaching and discipline, basically saying they're young and attentive and they're doing what I say and they're going for it. Let alone you, who are now old and with ripe faculties, and yet you asked me to teach you an instruction in brief. It's basically like you've been around forever, you've never paid attention to what I'm trying to say, and now you want me to teach you? And Malyunkaputta says, Sir, even though I'm an old man, elderly and senior, may the Buddha please teach me the Dhamma in brief. Hopefully I can understand the meaning of what the Buddha says. Hopefully, I can be an heir to the Buddha's teaching. And for me, the message is never too late, right? Sometimes I hear people say, oh, I started too late, or I don't understand enough. Malyukaputta is our guide and um, uh, representative of if we take this seriously. Well, I, I shouldn't get ahead of myself. He has this now this desire to really get a teaching from the Buddha. So the Buddha asks him, do you have any desire or greed and affection for sounds known by the ear, and then goes through all the other sense, still sights, smells, etc., that you haven't known, that you've never known before, that you don't know or you don't think would be known, basically anything ever, any desire. Malyukaputta actually says, no. No, I don't. So he has been practicing to be able to say, no, I don't imagine, I haven't had, and I'm not imagining that I will have any desire, grasping, clinging to what's arising at the sixth sense. So he has let go of a lot. There is some wisdom already there. So this is significant. So then the Buddha gives him the same teaching he gave to Bahia. In the scene, let there be just the scene. In the herd, let there be just the herd. And that section about there will be no you there, etc. And then, this is where it gets interesting, he questions Malyunkaputta to see if he actually understands this brief teaching. Whereas Bahia just said thank you and walked off. So this is Malyunkaputta's answer. Having seen a form with mindfulness muddled, Attending to the pleasing sign, 
one experiences it with an infatuated mind and remains tightly holding to it. Many feelings flourish within, originating from the visible form, covetousness and annoyance as well, by which one's mind becomes disturbed. For one who accumulates suffering thus, nibbana, freedom, true freedom, is said to be far away. And so he repeats that for each of the sense doors. Mindfulness muddled, attending to the pleasing sign. However, when firmly mindful, one sees a form, and likewise for the other sense doors, when one is not inflamed by lust for forms, one experiences it with a dispassionate mind and does not remain holding tightly to it. One fares mindfully in such a way that even as one sees the form and while one undergoes a feeling, so meaning Vedana is still there, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, suffering is exhausted, not built up. For one dismantling suffering thus, Nibbana is said to be close by. For one diminishing thus, suffering thus, Nibbana is said to be close by in such a way Venerable Sir, that I, it is in such a way, Venerable Sir, that I understand in detail the meaning of what was stated by the Blessed One. And the Blessed One approves Malyunkaputta's understanding. So I just think this is so helpful for us. Um, when mindfulness is muddled, Nibbana is far away. When we get infatuated or disturbed, or cling to in whatever way we do, the sense experiences, Nibbana is far away. But when one is mindful, seeing with clarity, not getting entangled, Nibbana is said to be close by. This is what this teaching is pointing to, not getting entangled in these arisings at the six (coughs) sense doors. And when we look at our experience what we see is this entanglement is formed by thinking, right? It's taking a sense impression and making a whole world out of it, especially, as I've said, the story of me, solidifying a sense of self. So watch what the mind does when there's a new sense impression at one of the sense gates, especially something that's strong or impactful, what I've seen for me in my practice is what I can, if I'm, mindfulness isn't really clear, I can respond with what's called an interrogative, which is like interrogation when we're asking a question. And there's a classic framing of what's the basis of good storytelling or journalism, which is to ask and answer the questions, who, what, when, where, how, and why. Right? It said that any good journalistic piece should address and answer all of those questions when trying to describe what happened. Great for journalism, not so great for our mindfulness. Because through trying to answer those questions, that's how we get entangled. So a noise arises. Who's making that noise? Right? What are they doing? What is that noise? Why are they doing that? You know, and of course, they shouldn't be doing that. It's disturbing me. 
all of these kind of questions that we can have about just a noise or about a sensation in the body. I can remember, I don't know why this just still sticks out for me, just sitting quietly, sensations coming and going, but I had this kind of bizarre sensation in my arm, a little deeper than usual, a little kind of twisting, vibrating kind of sensation. And instead of just noticing our sensation, I met my mind just going, bone cancer. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's what it must, and of course, you know, the high alert. What is, uh, and again, calm down. It's probably not bone cancer. You know, this was many years ago, so I know it wasn't. But that's what we do. We take a sensation, and through that interrogative process, we make a whole story about this, trying to explain or understand our inner experience and what's happening in the outer world, right? We especially get caught in the why. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening now? Why didn't it happen yesterday? Why is it happening today? And our practice isn't about answering that question why. It's not doing therapy where we're trying to understand everything and why it happened. The Buddha called that one of the imponderables, you know, the unfolding of karma, why things are happening. Asking actually what is happening, that can be skillful. If it's done with clarity, especially if things are kind of complicated or we're getting confused, we're like, Oh, what is happening? What am I noticing? Oh, this. If that points us back to direct experience with some clarity, oh, this is happening. You know, if there's a a, a complex emotion happening, instead of, again, getting lost in the why and the wherefore and the who and the what, just, oh, it's pressure in the body, a contraction in the heart, a heaviness um, in the belly. That can be skillful. I don't know if someone has said this already, but uh, practicing with Ajahn Sumedho, that great teacher and um, previous abbot of Amaravati Monastery, one of the practice tips he would always say is just to say, oh, aversion is like this. Sadness is like this. Wanting is like this. And he would say, you have to know aversion to know non-aversion. But just that clarity, oh, this experience is like this immediately there can be some mindfulness and even some equanimity. So that can be helpful, the what, if it directs us back. But most of the time, these other questions, who, what, when, where, how, and why, not so helpful. So notice if you have an experience at the sixth sense doors and the next thought is who. Who is doing that? Why are they doing it? You know, we just get caught in that and usually caught in aversion or wanting. So we start to see that practice is about noting the characteristics of experience, not the content or concepts around it. Dawn spoke beautifully the other day in talking about the body, about how so much we're relating is just concepts, ideas, not helpful, distortions often the characteristics of experience, not the concepts or content. This is the practice of meditation. So what do I mean by characteristics? Of course, the sort of primary ones, the theme runs through 
this form of practice is to see the three characteristics of impermanence, not satisfactoriness, and not self. This is um, a way of, I mean, it can be deep, deep, powerful insights, whether they're very personal or on the impersonal nature. But it also means the elemental nature of experience, or that it's just tingling, or burning, or vibrating. Earth, air, fire, water, the elemental nature. The Vedana are part of its characteristics, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Even noticing or knowing that something is a hindrance or a factor of awakening, that's its characteristic, not the content of what's happening. This is how we disentangle. Noticing dukkha, this is a characteristic. Oh, this is suffering. I'm getting caught here. Ah, dukkha. Something can release a little. We're not so much caught in the content, but we're with the characteristics. When we get caught in the content and the concepts, the Buddha had a word for this. He called it papancha. (coughs) And this is the tendency of mind to take some arising or a multiple of arising of the sense doors and then make a world out of it. Just run on and on with stories about it. Stories in the past, stories about the future, (coughs) stories about myself. And it's usually threads running through it of worry, regret, anxiety, optimistic planning, uh, uh, fear. um, Again, the story of (coughs) self and all of that movement into past and future. The Buddha talked a lot about Papancha because he saw it as a source of suffering and conflict. As we indulge in this way of thinking, We create dukkha for ourselves and for others, whether it's in our inner experience or how we're relating to and understanding the world. So again, many suttas where the Buddha talked about thinking and this kind of thinking that leads to suffering. In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha said, Bhikkhus, I do not see a single thing that when it's not developed like this, is as useless as the mind. An undeveloped mind is useless. Bhikkhus, I do not see a single thing that, when it is developed like this, is as workable as the mind. A developed mind is workable. And I've seen other translations of this. The Buddha sometimes translated as a mind that's tamed or untamed or developed or undeveloped or um, beneficial or harmful. But basically it means what we want to do is work with our mind so it doesn't get entangled in this. So there can be some clarity around our inner process and how we're relating to the world so that it develops clear seeing and insight and wise reflection. Because not all thoughts are papancha. It's papancha is when we get lost in thought and it's a proliferation out of thinking. You know, there are thoughts we need to have. Even planning thoughts, a judicious use of planning is essential for any great or even small endeavor to happen. But it's when we get lost and entangled in the story. This is proliferation, (coughs) papancha. 
And again, another paper by Venerable Analio, those of you that know him a little know, he's basically a Dharma fountain. And uh, we always say he, 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 he um, writes more than any of us can keep up and read. And he's exploring suttas and bringing out themes and, uh, uh, um, as I said, comparative between different traditions, always um, something interesting. So this was a paper I saw from him called The Five Fingers of Name. And name in this context is from the Nama Rupa, which is one of the links of the 12 links of dependent co-arising. And it's been mentioned briefly. It's a complex teaching. I don't want to go into it, but it's in the section that's basically describing the human experience of having consciousness and six sense doors. So we take in the world. And then there's this one link that's called Nama Rupa. And it's usually translated as simply as name and form, mind and body, mentality, materiality. Um, Could say a lot more about this, but just to highlight this Nama is literally like the word name, giving a name to things. It's perceiving things, and in Buddhism, perception sanya is the recognition of something out of memory. So we give it a name because we know this is a bell or a zabuton. I mean, you showed that to someone in the middle of Barry, they'd say it's a very, very small futon, but we know it as a zabuton. So we give a name to something out of experience. And, and it's singling something out, and it's part of what keeps this wheel of dependent co-arising going, is the singling out of something and then creating a relationship to it. And what he says is the etymology, meaning the, the linguistic background of Papancha, is connected to the five-fingered hand and the numeral five. And that kind of, I don't know if I quite say blew my mind when I read that, but I've spent quite a bit of time in India. I never got to speak any of the languages there very well, but I could count. So I've known for many years ecto tin cha punch. And excuse my accent, it's probably terrible, but I've known that punch was five since I was in my 20s. But I never put papancha together with that. And so what he says is papancha is this, right? You know, there's the quietude of just the resting hand and then boom. And it's just so evocative of what happens in the mind, right? We have this little kernel of something, and we take it, and we run with it. It just explodes, leaps into existence. So this is papancha. I always, it's very onomatopoeic, right? Papancha. And Venerable was basing his paper on an exploration by one of his um, teachers, Bhikkhu Nanananda, where he says the five aspects of name, and in this, again, there's a lot of lists in this. You don't have to track any of this. But name, um, its components are feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. So they're all kind of the orienting aspects of the mind. Um, And he relates each one of those, form, feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention, to one of the fingers, and he said, when any one of them gets out of hand, again, this is an English saying, right, out of hand, oh, that really got out of hand, didn't it? That's papancha. 
And so he sort of has a whole description of how each one relates to one of the fingers. So I won't, don't want to go through all those. It's a longer thing. But, for example, he says the little finger he equates with Vedana, feeling tone. He says it's easily overlooked because it's small. Yet no hand is complete without the little finger. The influence of feeling tone on determining our attitudes and reactions is as easily overlooked as the little finger, yet important. And Venerable Analio says, all of the five factors of name are required for, a fully, for fully functioning mental operations. Again, that's feeling, as in feeling tone, Vedana, perception, sanya, intention, contact, and attention. They indeed remain operative even in an arhat, even in someone who's awakened. Those aspects of mind are still present. The crucial difference is only that the five fingers of an arhant no longer get out of hand. They no longer produce conceptual proliferation or papancha. Guy might talk more about papancha. It's so interesting, but I just needed to include it because it's, it's so much the counter to this bare um, aware- attention that I'm talking about. So it's, and papancha is really important to recognize in our practice. Literally, it um, means proliferation or diffuseness or spreading. It's always negative with implications of distortion or falsification. That's how we can know it. As I said, not all thinking is papancha. Tanasaru Bhikkhu, another scholar, monk practitioner, translates it as self-reflexive thinking, meaning, again, the thoughts are about ourselves. Proliferation, complication, elaboration, or distortion. So just from those words, you can get a sense of the kind of thinking that is papancha. It starts with, um, whether it's a conscious or not conscious belief, I am the thinker. I'm back here uh, the source of everything, and the, the, the self grows out of that. And I always say papancha is like the social media feed of, our mind, of, of the mind, right? There's always something beeping and buzzing, pay attention here, something's happening, don't forget this, don't miss out on this, make sure you, you attend to that, and it's like beep, bop, beep, and just things are rising. We're like, what, what, what? If we're not, paying clear attention, we can get pushed and pulled. And, you know, something going viral. How many millions of views have you given those fantasies you've had recently? It's like (laughs) things getting clocked up, thumbs up, thumbs down to our experience over and over again. And because we can get so lost in this, this way of thinking, all about me right at the center, Many of you have described this, this sense that other people are looking at you and judging, evaluating, and comparing you. And I often say, I don't think they're doing that. They're doing that to themselves, right? But the reason we think that is because sometimes we are doing that, right? We're looking out, doing that, so we imagine people doing it to us. It's happening much less than you think, but it is how we create the sense of self over and over again, this judging and evaluating and comparing self and other, self from yesterday, today, tomorrow, all of this sort of comparing. And so papancha seemed to be at the heart of that, of how we create 
self and grasp and cling to it. And as the Buddha said, the source of all kinds of holding to strong views and disputes and conflict. And then he cuts it all by saying, in whatever way you conceive of self, the truth is ever other than that. So all of these ideas we have about ourselves, all these stories we have about ourselves, he just said, no, no, you won't find the truth in that way of thinking, that papancha. And so the key to that way of understanding is in the second part of that very brief teaching given to both Bahia and Malyunkaputta, where the Buddha says, then Bahia, so he, first is in the, excuse me, in the scene, let there be just the scene, etc., heard, just the heard. Then he says, then Bahia, if you practice in that way, you will not be in that. When you are not in that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there, nor in between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So it can seem a little mystifying just hearing it. I know just hearing things, it's not so easy to catch. But what he's saying, when you are not in that, meaning you're not taking up objects and reifying them and holding them and identifying and grasping. So we've shifted our relationships to objects. When there is no you there, you're not creating a sense of self through that relationship with objects. And this is a very classical, traditional way of framing things. It was in those metaphysical questions. Then you'll be neither here, nor there, nor in between the two. And it's sort of like a koan, neither here, nor there, nor in between the two. This means a realization of not-self, of emptiness. We're not solidifying, using objects to reify our sense of ourselves, to reify the objects. We're seeing things clearly. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And so the instruction is not to create a sense of self or self out of our experiences. The experiences can still happen. They will happen. They happen for an arhat, for the Buddha. But we don't have to identify with and appropriate them and make the story of me. And what we start to see is self is not, certainly not a solid thing, nothing permanent, but it's actually a verb. We're creating this sense of self over and over again through what's called I-making and my-making. And there's this famous teaching from the Anguttara Nikaya, very brief, where the Buddha just says, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. And Ajahn Buddhadasa, that great uh, Thai forest teacher, in his book Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, says, if one amplifies the meaning of this a little, it may be rendered as, no one should grasp at or cling to anything as being I or mine. As being I refers to the feeling called I-ing, as in I as a verb. 
And there's a Pali for that is ahamkara, the grasping at a solid sense of self. As being mine refers to the feeling called my-ing, my-ing. Mamankara, the grasping at objects as being connected or solid like the self, around the self. So I-ing and my-ing are things we do. They're not, there's nothing solid or permanent there. And so in seeing that, this is what happened this was the teaching to Bahia, and as I said, Bahia became enlightened. And I said he was considered foremost in those who instantly comprehended the truth. It said our dear Malyunkaputta was not instant, not so quick, but he did go away and practice diligently with that teaching and did become an arhant in his lifetime. So never too late. He was quite old. It's possible for us as well with that kind of clarity of seeing. The essence of this teaching is to keep it simple. Practicing with the arising the six sense doors and not getting entangled in them, but rather seeing their nature. Joseph Goldstein, in his book, Mindfulness, says, with this quality of bare knowing of whatever is seen, heard, felt, or cognized, we are not evaluating or proliferating different sense impressions. When we practice in this way, we live abiding, independent, not clinging to anything in this world. And that's a powerful statement. It both points to the possibility of freedom with this kind of clear seeing and insight, but also that it's available here and now, not something different. When the mind is untangled, when we see clearly with Dharma wisdom, when Dharma wisdom keeps infusing how we're relating to our experience, freedom is possible in this very moment, because there is unentanglement. We're not creating a sense of self. We're seeing clearly, as I said before, the characteristics of experience, not lost in content or concepts, and particularly the characteristics of the the three marks of existence, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or not-self. Or as one teacher says, we learn that things are not personal, not perfect, and not permanent. A good way of framing these three characteristics. And that everything that's arising is conditioned in this conditioned realm. Nibbana being the only thing that's unconditioned. When we understand clearly and deeply through insight we don't get so entangled. And of course we'll forget, but this practice is to keep reminding us of the, these truths. So why, you know, the root we've said of sati, of mindfulness, is to remember. It's to keep remembering these deep truths. Tanasaro Bhikkhu Tanjef says, emptiness is a mode of perception a way of looking at experience. It adds nothing to 
and takes nothing away from the raw data of physical and mental events. Just this clarity of seeing that reveals the nature, reveals the Dhamma. The quiet, attentive mind allows us to see that, to experience that directly. When we're not filling the mind with papancha, with reifying and solidifying the sense of self and telling stories. I always remember Sylvia Borstein, dear friend and colleague, teacher, says one of her instructions to herself is, Sylvia, just sit down, pay attention, and don't tell yourself stories. Simple instruction, but so helpful. Don't tell yourself stories. One of the ways the Buddha talked about the kind of freedom that he experienced about Nibbana was actually nipipancha. And I can never say that without thinking of the knights who say nit, for any of you who've got that association, Monty Python. But nit just literally means not. So nipapancha is not papancha. That's a synonym for Nibbana. There's this list of the 33 synonyms for Nibbana, like the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the refuge, etc. The unproliferated or the not papancha is a synonym for Nibbana. The ending of papancha, nipapancha, is a mind that doesn't proliferate. And that is an experience of freedom. The Buddha said, people delight in proliferation in papancha, the Tathagata in non-proliferation, the Buddha in non-proliferation. It's from the Dhammapada. So I want to end with a a poem. It's from a book called The First Free Women, um, which are um, interpretations of the enlightenment poems of the early Buddhist nuns, the disciples of the Buddha, the female disciples of the Buddha, There's been some controversy about that book because it was publicized as a translation of this text of the Theragata, but it's not. It's interpretations of them. When it's read that way, I think there's some beautiful teachings in there. So that's how I read them, as, as inspired by or interpretations of these enlightenment poems of the early Buddhist nuns. And this is from Mittakali. Mitta means friend, so it means friend of the dark. I was always smart. If the path was good, I figured it would make me even smarter. One night while meditating, I watched my thoughts piling themselves up all around me. My mind built a hut out of all of those thoughts, then filled that hut. Soon it was a whole city a whole world. Oh, my beautiful, beautiful thoughts. Who will look after you after I'm gone? I swear I could weep. I could weep for all of you. My sisters, do you really want to be free? Are you ready to leave behind all of your precious little houses and make your home everywhere? It's not as hard as you might think. First stand up then walk out the door. So let's let the words settle for a moment, taking in the words of Mittakali. Are we ready to let go? And we hold on and cling to our precious, precious thoughts, but often they're entanglements, 
that aren't in our best interests. It's not as hard as you might think. First stand up, then walk out the door. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. If any, anything was helpful for you in this, let it just rest in your heart. If it wasn't helpful, just let it go. Mainly don't tell yourself stories about yourself or me or the talk. Just <laughs> let it go. Thank you. So we have a little over half an hour for some walking. Perhaps go somewhere where the air is a little cooler and fresher to wake yourself up and come back for the chanting at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.